For a long time, it seemed that the road movie, just like the Western, was the sole property of American cinema. After all, it was Hollywood that invented the horse opera, John Ford who filmed Monument Valley, and John Wayne who guided the pioneers across the Great Plains. And as that genre was being solidified in the 1930s, Hollywood dressed it up in a series of guises. Be it The Wizard of Oz, It Happened One Night, or the road movies starring Bob Hope, Bing Crosby and Dorothy L'Amour, in Hollywood's Myth Factory, all roads lead to Beverly Hills. But really, the road movie was merely a modern incarnation of stories that date back into antiquity. Biblically, what is Exodus if not a great journey? And mythologically, who was Ulysses if not a great voyager? The immigrants who went through Ellis Island were all seeking the same promised land. And it was their epic treks that informed so much of modern American storytelling. Metamorphosing from The Grapes of Wrath, The Searchers, 2001 and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to Midnight Run, Thelma and Louise, Finding Nemo and Little Miss Sunshine. By the time the Western hit the mid-60s, however, revisionism was setting in, and Italian filmmakers took the Western and gave it more twists than a plate of spaghetti. But while it took the Italians to change the Western, it appears that the Americans themselves were ahead of their own game. It was they who re-engineered the road movie with the likes of Easy Rider, The Sugarland Express and The Blues Brothers. Rolling, 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 though the streams are swollen, keep them doggies rolling raw Yet, ironically, it took a German filmmaker, Wim Wenders, to give America the road movie to end all road movies and show everything that could be crammed into not just the genre, but possibly the myth of America itself. Wenders was well positioned to do so. Born in Dusseldorf in 1945, he grew up in a Germany not only politically divided into East and West, but also struggling to come to terms with the fact that so many of its people had been part of the vast infrastructure that implemented Hitler's final solution. In the years following the war, West Germany was effectively occupied by Allied forces, whose presence was to ensure against the possible revival of the Nazi ideology. And in its place, Wenders found an overwhelming Americanization of German identity. Its cinema, music, clothing and food was not only to entertain, dress and feed the thousands of American servicemen and women stationed in the hundreds of military bases dotted across the country, but also, as far as vendors and his contemporaries were concerned, to indoctrinate the young population with the consumerist capitalist ethos. McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Levi Jeans and Hollywood movies. Vendors experienced an epiphany and in a three-year span between 1974 and 76, he explored it in a trilogy of road movies, Alice in the Cities, The Wrong Move and, most explicit of all, Kings of the Road. Paris, Texas was the unanimous winner of the Palme d'Or at the 1984 Cannes Film Festival. And yet, although it was instantly hailed as a classic in Europe, American critics and audiences alike were not quite so welcoming. 
at least not initially. As the decades have rolled by, however, the film's status has grown, but when it opened in New York 30 years ago, it was felt that Paris, Texas was too reluctant to sing the praises of its own subject. Less than celebrating the American myth, Paris, Texas seemed to revel in stripping away the legend to expose an irreparably damaged reality. Which perhaps should come as no surprise when we note that Vendors is a filmmaker who is admittedly so aware of American culture that in Kings of the Road he has one of his characters utter the line, the Yanks have colonised our subconscious. With an observation filled with such disdain, reverence and resignation, what else could you expect from Paris, Texas? Paris, Texas was written by Sam Shepard. Vendors had approached him because Shepard's plays, amongst them True West, Fool for Love and Buried Child, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize, changed the perception of what was once America's frontier. Shepard's characters and the crisis he created for them not only dismantled the classic iconography of ranchers and homesteaders, but repainted the prairies and farmlands into landscapes of emotional, spiritual, historical and existential uncertainty which is exactly what vendors wanted Paris, Texas to be, a great trek across the landscape of the heart. Brilliantly lensed by Dutch cinematographer Robbie Muller, the film's opening frames seem to subvert American myths. It begins with a view of an iconic American landscape, the Texan desert. Floating high above it, we are in fact in the point of view of that most American of birds, the bald-headed eagle. You can find images of the eagle on America's coins, cash and even its seal of office. As such, it symbolises the strength, rugged individualism and manifest destiny of the United States. Next we see a man walking through this parched landscape. The association of the eagle might suggest that this man is too an example of the strong, rugged individuality that helped forge America. Yet when we see him in close-up, he is anything but. We later learn he is called Travis, and although his name conjures up the romantic idealism of the early pioneers, this Travis is haggard, worn out and above all, lost. Travis, laconically played by Harry Dean Stanton, has been listed as missing for four years ever since he walked out on his young wife Jane, portrayed by the ghostly Nastasia Kinski, and abandoned their infant son Hunter, played by Hunter Carson. But Travis is found and his brother Walt is contacted with the news. The first time we meet Walt, played patiently by Dean Stockwell, he is on the phone in front of another great American icon, the skyscraper. Only it isn't a skyscraper, it's a giant billboard, and we soon realise that Walt lives in Los Angeles and works in advertising. 
a profession where image is everything and reality a distant and discarded second. With that in mind, let's reconsider Walt's name. Which American was a creator of great fantasy? This trope is repeated with great variations throughout the story, to the point that every image becomes not so much representative of something else, as degraded of itself. Besides the landscape, where we see walls on vacant lots plastered with graffiti, there is also the open spaces of old railway lines, peppered with rusty iron carcasses. Once we make it to the highway, we are met with blinking neon signs and lonely motel rooms. Coming to the urban sprawl of Los Angeles brings us endless roads that generate howls of pain, fear and confusion. None of that area will be called a safety zone. There will be no safety zone. I can guarantee you the safety zone will be eliminated, eradicated. You will all be extradited to the land of no return. And when Wald finally manages to bring Travis home to his house in the suburbs, we see artefacts and mementos of a family that once was. Photographs and home movies of Travis, Jane and Hunter. But the photographs are creased and torn, and the home movies are faded and scratched, and hint that it's not just the images that are crumbling. In the years since Travis's disappearance, Jane too has vanished, leaving their young boy in the care of Walt and his wife Anne, played by Aurora Clément. With Travis's return, however, not only is Walt's position as a surrogate father displaced, Anne's position as adoptive mother is discarded as well, with Travis taking Hunter on a quest to find Jane. Late in the story, Travis traces Jane to Houston, Texas. He parks his car outside a rundown building, on which an enormous mural has been painted. The image depicts America's greatest lady, Liberty, but once inside the building, Travis discovers it to be a strip club. Initially, it appears decrepit that of all the professions that Jane may have taken, vendors and Shepard decided for her to be a sex worker. But careful consideration should tell you that this is part of the film's wider mythological pattern. I've already suggested that Paris, Texas belongs somewhat to the Western genre. But besides referencing the Bible, the Hollywood Western also reworks a few ancient Greek myths. For Travis, read Ulysses, wandering in the wilderness for many years, trying to find his way home. For Travis and Jane, read Orpheus and Eurydice, only instead of Eurydice dying, she is now in an underworld of another sort. And while Travis traces her there, instead of playing beautiful music to bring her safely back to life, Travis spins her a story. I knew these people. What people? These two people. <clears throat> they were in love with each other. The girl was very young, about 17 or 18, I guess. And the guy was quite a bit older. And he was kind of raggedy and wild. But just like the myth of Orpheus, once Eurydice is resurrected and led out from the underworld, Orpheus cannot look back. So as Travis tells Jane the story, 
he literally turns his back on her. And once he has reunited Jane with Hunter, he has to leave. Speaking of Orpheus and his music, very rarely has a soundtrack conjured up the spirit, theme and time and place of a story, as did Rye Cooler's elegiac slide guitar. Just as Sam Shepard's script reached back into Greek mythology, the same goes for Cooter's score. Cooter's talents have graced many recordings and educated many musicians, most notably Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Van Morrison, and in the late 60s and early 70s, the Rolling Stones. But for Paris, Texas, Cooter reached back into the past and revived the works of Blind Willie Johnson, the blues guitarist so pure, his chords have practically assumed sacred status. And in a completely fitting way, Cooter's score went on to influence other movie soundtracks. It is somewhat ironic that Cooter's music inspired an Irish rock band in their quest to remythologize America. That is from U2's mega-selling 1985 album, The Joshua Tree the cover for which was realised by another great Dutch photographer, Anton Corbin. And in 1988, Vendors directed the video for their song, All I Want Is You. Thirty years after it was made by the standard of today's fast-paced cinema, Paris, Texas may feel slow. I much prefer the word measured. And by any measure, Paris, Texas is a masterpiece. A masterpiece so great that it may one day pass into the realm of legend. (laughs) 